I was asked by a few people what it's like working in the hospital these days, the days of the novel coronavirus, and meant to tell listeners about it in real time, but there was no time in real time to think much or talk about it. I will tell you that it's nothing like what is described in New York City or New Orleans, Detroit, Italy, or Spain. Our numbers rose from seven or eight cases the first week of two that I was on service to about 18 with a few in the ICU the second week. The war with this novel coronavirus, aka COVID-19, aka SARS-CoV-2, has often been compared with real war, but I've heard it compared with other things. An emergency room nurse at Alameda County Hospital in Oakland, the safety net and trauma hospital for Oakland and Alameda County, was on the radio the other day comparing their relatively quiet ER with the calm before a tidal wave. You look out and see that the water has pulled out a mile from shore and you know that soon that wave is coming, but you don't know how big it will be or when it will come. But I think the war analogy might be more accurate than that, because so far, I'm not sure we're going to get hit with a tidal wave. I read a lot about the Civil War, and in that war, there were over 10,000 battles, some huge, like Gettysburg, where thousands died, which is like the battle with COVID-19 happening in New York City and in Italy. And then there were other battles, which were just skirmishes in small towns throughout the West and Midwest and the East and the South. Right now, I feel like our medical center is fighting a skirmish. We know what the enemy is, and the enemy is in our hospital and in our community, but the numbers are still relatively small. Will we end up in a huge battle in the coming weeks? Well, projections are that we will surge, but the moment we will surge is unknown. Governor Newsom ordered shelter at home and closed bars, restaurants, and pubs relatively early compared with other states. Will this circumvent a major battle in Northern California? No one really knows at this point, so being on the wards was hard in this sense, not knowing what was to come during the two weeks I was on service or what is to come after the time I was on. I am on backup call the next few weeks, and I would be seriously surprised if I don't get called in as colleagues get infected and ill with COVID-19. On my team, the resident and two interns, no students as they've been pulled at this point, ruled out close to 20 patients for COVID infection. We literally didn't make a single diagnosis of COVID-19 infection. But what evolved in a really good way during the two weeks I was on the wards was the testing for the virus. When I initially came on, the only test we had was a send-out test that took a minimum of seven days to come back. Completely ridiculous. But during the time I was on, the medical center brought an in-house test online that got up to being able to test about 160 or 170 patients per day with a 92% sensitivity and a 96 or so percent specificity, this was truly a huge development for us. The results came back the same day, allowing us to rule patients out and save a tremendous amount of personal protective equipment, PPE we would otherwise have had to use for seven days while ruling out a patient with the send out test of seven days. Still, the PPE issue was a huge source of anxiety for me personally the whole time I was on. 
Every time I donned a gown, gloves, and mask, of course the goggles are reusable, though necessary, I felt very guilty. Why guilty? Because it worries me that anything we're using now won't allow us to have enough PPE in two or three weeks. If we can't protect healthcare workers, they, we, <laughs> will get sick and there won't be enough healthcare workers to do the work we need to do. This was a huge concern and it still is. So what was the easiest thing the last two weeks? Far and away the traffic because there basically wasn't any and the cheeseburgers in the cafeteria because normally you have to order and stand around at the grill waiting for them to be cooked and I never do this because I never seem to have that time or luxury or patience to stand around waiting. So now they cook them and wrap them and put them in a warming tray so people do not congregate by the grill. They are really good cheeseburgers. Of the 14 days straight that I was on the wards, I ate cheeseburgers on 12 of them. 12 cheeseburgers in 14 days. Pretty crazy and pretty unhealthy, but man, do they taste good. Solace and bomb in the time of COVID-19. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. The other easy thing, our residents just handling things with their usual calm, professional, caring demeanors. Inside, they had to be, like all of us, a little anxious, perhaps even freaking out, but it sure didn't show. I felt like our patients got really good care, despite a world that felt to be spinning slightly off its axis. The hardest thing during the two weeks? Well, kind of not directly related to COVID-19. There's a no visitors rule currently to keep our patients, potential visitors, and healthcare workers as safe as possible from spreading the disease. But on two occasions, I had to talk with patients who didn't have anything related to COVID-19 about newly discovered metastatic cancer. I had trouble keeping it together with the first one because I just kept thinking about how much I knew he would have liked his wife to be there for that moment with him. It was sad talking to him about this news, but almost sadder that his wife wasn't nearby. We did get special permission for her to come in later that day, but she actually opted not to, perhaps worried about contacting the virus as her husband was getting close to being released home. I'm not really sure exactly what was happening there. The second situation occurred on my last day on service, another man with newly diagnosed metastatic cancer. After we'd talked for a while about the medical issues, I asked him what most concerned him at that moment. I thought he would reiterate what he had said earlier, that he wanted to get home and spend as much time as he had left with his wife and grandchildren. But that was not his greatest concern. His greatest concern? That he hadn't brought his dentures to the hospital with him and therefore he couldn't eat his food. His wife had not brought them in because of the no visitor policy due to the pandemic. I really thought I was going to lose it at that moment. I went out, talked to the charge nurse, and immediately got permission for his wife to stop by, but only for a minute, to drop off his teeth. It amazes me how often the practice of medicine has nothing to do with the practice of medicine. So I could go on, but I won't. I am sure that our nurses and housekeepers and tech support staff and ancillary staff and residents and faculty are accumulating a ton of stories like these during these challenging times. So far, my memories are of things indirectly impacted by the pandemic and not of the disease itself. 
but perhaps that will change in coming weeks. Okay, so we're back for the last few questions in infectious disease medicine in the I Am Essentials book. Now, we'll tell you I'm going to be skipping a few of the last few questions just because I honestly think they're too easy for you guys. So <laughs> I'll let you get the book and see if you feel that they're too easy. But So we're just going to finish off here with five questions, and then we'll be done with infectious diseases. And you won't know everything about infectious diseases, I'm afraid, but at least you'll be down the road a little ways. Oh, and you may be wondering who that jazz pianist is playing in the background there uh, at the beginning and during my monologue there. That is Ellis Marsalis, and uh, some of you may be familiar with his work. He is a was an amazing composer, mentor, teacher, and musician, uh, and he has three sons who are all in jazz. Uh, Jason Witten and Branford Marsalis. One of his sons is also a poet, uh, Ellis Marsalis III, and he's also a photographer, lives in Baltimore City in Maryland. So really a quite amazing and famous family, but Ellis died last week from the coronavirus, another victim of the coronavirus, sadly. Okay, moving on here. Item 43, a 75-year-old man is evaluated in the emergency department because of a two-day history of confusion, falls, and urinary incontinence. History includes diabetes mellitus, hypertension, and chronic kidney disease with a baseline serum creatinine level of 2.2 milligrams per deciliter. Medications are glargine insulin, metoprolol, and lisinopril. On physical examination, temperature is 38.5 degrees centigrade or 101.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 89 over 55 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 112 per minute. Respiratory rate is 24 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 93% on ambient air. The patient is disoriented and has moderate word-finding difficulty. Findings of cardiovascular and respiratory examinations are normal. There is suprapubic tenderness. The remainder of the physical exam is normal. Laboratory reveals leukocyte count of 18,000 per microliter, serum creatinine level of 3.0 milligrams per deciliter. Recall that his baseline is 2.2 milligrams per deciliter. Plasma glucose level of 160 milligrams per deciliter, blood urea nitrogen level 48 milligrams per deciliter, lactic acid level a healthy, or I should say unhealthy, 40.5 milligrams per deciliter. That's getting up there. Urinalysis findings, a dipstick results are positive for leukocyte esterase and nitrates. Microscopic analysis shows too many leukocytes to count. Blood and urine cultures are obtained which of the following is the most appropriate next step in the management of this patient? A, intravenous crystalloid solution and broad-spectrum antibiotics. B, intravenous crystalloid solution and vasopressor therapy. C, intravenous glucocorticoid and broad-spectrum antibiotics. 
D, intravenous insulin and broad-spectrum antibiotics. Let me just throw those at you again. A is intravenous crystalloid solution and broad-spectrum antibiotics. B is intravenous crystalloid solution and vasopressor therapy. C, intravenous glucocorticoid and broad-spectrum antibiotics. And D is intravenous insulin and broad-spectrum antibiotics. All right, so hopefully you got that one correct. The answer is A, uh, which was intravenous crystalloid solution, broad-spectrum antibiotics. I would expect all of our UC Davis students to get that one correct. Uh, come see me if you didn't, and I will chat with you. Uh, not really, but uh, had to say that. This patient should receive intravenous crystalloid solution and broad-spectrum antibiotics. Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, or SIRS, is a term that was introduced to describe findings of altered temperature, tachycardia, hyperventilation, and abnormal leukocyte count, regardless of the cause, whether it's inflammatory or infectious which this patient clearly has at least SIRS. So sepsis is defined as SIRS plus suspected infection or a source of infection. Severe sepsis is associated with systemic effects including hypotension, confusion, decreased urine output, and metabolic acidosis. This patient has severe sepsis. The source of the patient's infection should be identified and controlled. Blood and source culture should be collected before the administration of antibiotics when possible. Treatment with broad-spectrum empiric antibiotics chosen based on the site of infection, whether it's lung, GI, or unknown, should be implemented within one hour after recognition of sepsis. Crystalloid solution, which would be normal saline or lactated ringer solution, should be given to achieve central venous pressure of 8 to 12 millimeters of mercury. Repetitive fluid challenges are performed by giving 500 to 1,000 cc boluses of crystalloid solution over short intervals while assessing the response to target central venous pressure. If mean arterial pressure is less than 65 millimeters of mercury despite fluid challenge and adequate preload, treatment with vasoactive agents should be started and titrated as needed. Again, remember that's important. If the mean arterial pressure is less than 65 despite fluid challenge or challenges, uh, treatment with vasoactive agents should be started and titrated up. High-dose glucocorticoids are of no benefit in sepsis and were shown to harm patients in earlier studies. The surviving sepsis campaign suggests that replacement dose intravenous hydrocortisone be given only to adult patients with septic shock after blood pressure is found to be poorly responsive to fluid resuscitation and vasopressor therapy. The American College of Physicians uh, Clinical Practice Guideline uh, for use of intensive insulin therapy for the management of glycemic control in hospitalized patients recommends that after initial stabilization, patients with severe sepsis and hyperglycemia who are admitted to the intensive care unit should receive insulin therapy to achieve a plasma glucose level of 140 to 200 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, yeah, this patient has no indication for intravenous insulin therapy at this time. All right, so key point here is the goals of sepsis management are to treat infection and optimize tissue perfusion. 
Question 44. A 47-year-old man is evaluated in the hospital because of right knee pain, fever, and rigors three days after repair of a right tibial plateau fracture. He has no other symptoms. Current medications include anoxaparin and oxycodone. On examination, temperature is 39.0 degrees centigrade, 102.2 degrees Fahrenheit, by the way. Blood pressure is 100 over 60 millimeters of mercury, pulse rate 110 per minute, respiratory rate is 22, and oxygen saturation is 95% on room air. The right knee is swollen, tender, and erythematous with reduced mobility. Arthrocentesis of the right knee shows purulent synovial fluid. Synovial fluid and blood cultures are obtained. Which of the following is the best antibiotic management of this infection? A. Begin treatment with empiric antibiotics after adequate fluid resuscitation. B. Begin treatment with empiric antibiotics within one hour. C. Withhold antibiotics pending arthroscopic joint drainage. Or D. Withhold antibiotics until culture results are available. Once more, those choices are A. Begin treatment with empiric antibiotics after adequate fluid resuscitation. B, begin treatment with empiric antibiotics within one hour. C, withhold antibiotics pending arthroscopic joint drainage. Or D, withhold antibiotics until culture results are available. And if you don't know this, I will tell you, it is never a good thing to answer with withhold antibiotics in a septic patient. So sometimes you can do that. You can wait, get a bone biopsy in somebody with osteomyelitis. You don't necessarily need to start antibiotics right away, and it might muck up your uh, tissue or bone results. But in this case, this patient is clearly septic, so you definitely want to get those antibiotics going. So the best antibiotic management of this infection is to begin treatment with empiric antibiotics within one hour. The source of infection should be identified and controlled. Removal of infected devices and drainage of abscesses may be life-saving interventions. Blood and source culture should be collected before administration of antibiotics when possible. Broad-spectrum empiric antibiotics chosen based on the site of infection should be implemented within one hour after recognition of sepsis. Even with early implementation, use of inappropriate antibiotics, i.e. you missed the target, um, uh, or you gave an antibiotic where you have resistant bacteria, is associated with a mortality rate of 42%, whereas the mortality rate is 17% if appropriate antibiotics are used. Delay in initiation of antibiotic treatment to await culture results or the choice of an inappropriate antibiotic agent is associated with an increased mortality rate. Adequate fluid resuscitation is essential in the management of sepsis. Most patients need four to six liters of fluid in the first six hours. Use of crystalloid or colloid solution is likely equivalent, um, and I know there's a lot of debate around this, depending on whether you're talking to a surgeon, an anesthesiologist, or an internist, or an emergency medicine doctor. However, colloid solution is far more expensive. Therefore, most practitioners use crystalloid solutions, such as lactated ringer solution or normal saline. Antibiotic therapy should not be delayed pending adequate fluid resuscitation. And so a word about uh, the joint, because uh, one of the choices was to wait until they'd gone and done arthros arthroscopy. 
uh, thorough drainage of infected joints is essential to promote successful resolution and prevent joint damage. Joints that are readily accessible, such as knees, can be managed with either needle aspiration or arthroscopic drainage. However, you will see orthopedists doing arthroscopic drainage most frequently and you'll see internists sometimes tapping those joints dry every day and it has to be done every day while there's fluid accumulating. But if there's an orthopedist around and willing, uh, these patients will go to the OR and get washouts and drains. So it can, this can be managed with either needle aspiration or arthroscopic drainage. Needle aspiration should be performed repeatedly, usually daily, with complete removal of synovial fluid until reaccumulation ceases. Arthroscopic drainage or open surgical debridement is mandatory when the joint space is irregular, the fluid is loculated, or it is otherwise difficult or impractical to thoroughly and regularly evacuate the joint space using needle drainage. Although arthroscopic joint drainage may be necessary, antibiotic therapy should be initiated immediately, not pending drainage. So the key point here is broad-spectrum empiric antibiotics chosen based on the site of infection, whether it's the lung, GI, or another source, should be implemented within one hour after recognition of sepsis. All right, so we're gonna, uh, if you have the book in front of you perchance, I'm gonna skip question 45. I think that one is too easy for you guys. You would nail it on a uh, test. So we're gonna go to question 46. A 41-year-old woman is admitted to the intensive care unit because of a one-day history of progressively worsening mental status and jaundice. Medical history is significant for advanced autoimmune hepatitis. On physical examination, temperature is 33 degrees centigrade. What's wrong there? 91.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 105 over 55 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 110 per minute and respiratory rate is 27 per minute. Body mass index is 18. She is unresponsive and jaundiced. The lungs are clear and findings on cardiac examination are normal. Abdominal examination shows a distended abdomen with a detectable fluid wave. Laboratory studies show a leukocyte count of 9,800 per microliter, serum creatinine level of 1.6 milligrams per deciliter, and lactic acid level of 6 milligrams per deciliter, normal being up to 0.7. No, sorry, that's uh, millimoles per liter. Uh, she is 0.7 millimoles per liter. Sorry about that. Chest radiograph is normal, and the findings of urinalysis are unremarkable. Blood and urine culture results are pending. Treatment is initiated with intravenous fluids and empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A, abdominal computed tomography, B, diagnostic paracentesis, C, hydrocortisone, or D, norepinephrine. Again, choices A, abdominal CT, B, diagnostic paracentesis, C, hydroxy, I, sorry, hydrocortisone, or D, norepinephrine. So that choice A, uh, not the right choice, of course, abdominal CT scan, sometimes referred to as the tube of truth um, by one of my former mentors at the San Francisco VA Hospital, Dr. Larry Tierney. The tube of truth, I always like that term. However, it's not the appropriate choice here. So the answer is B, a diagnostic paracentesis. The most appropriate next step 
is to do this diagnostic paracentesis to identify a potential source of infection. The findings on physical exam are characteristic of shock. Although advanced liver failure and sepsis can both present in this manner, septic shock should be assumed first and excluded as a cause. The patient meets the criteria for systemic inflammatory response syndrome, or SIRS, again, altered temperature, tachycardia, hyperventilation, and abnormal leukocyte count. The combination of organ dysfunction and SIRS is diagnostic of severe sepsis. In addition to aggressive intravenous fluid therapy and treatment with empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics, identifying the source of potential infection is the next step in management. The ascites associated with this patient's chronic liver disease represents a potential source of infection that should be evaluated. Identification of a source of infection is important in guiding the choice of antibiotic coverage and focusing longer-term antibiotic therapy once an organism has been identified. This patient's worsening liver failure and new-onset encephalopathy can be precipitated by infection. So regarding the tube of truth, the abdominal CT is not helpful in the diagnosis of bacterial peritonitis, and direct examination of the acidic fluid is necessary to assess this as a potential source of infection. Imaging for other potential abdominal sources of infection may be indicated if no other cause is found once peritonitis is excluded. What about vasopressors? Vasopressors such as norepinephrine are recommended for patients with septic shock, and remember this from the last question a couple ago, and mean arterial blood pressure of less than 65 millimeters of mercury after an adequate trial of intravenous fluids. The patient's current blood pressure is adequate, and so a vasopressor is not indicated. And coming back to glucocorticoid glucocorticoid therapy, I hope you didn't pick this one either, is not recommended in the setting of septic shock unless the patient's endocrine or glucocorticoid history warrants treatment or if undetected adrenal insufficiency is suspected. So what they're saying there is like if the patient was on chronic prednisone for some reason and you felt that they uh, might be adrenally insufficient, you would give uh, glucocorticoids, but not in this patient who was not on them. This patient has no clear history of chronic or intermittent glucocorticoid use and has not had an adequate trial volume expansion. So a key point here is the primary goals of sepsis management are to control the source of infection and to initiate antibiotic treatment promptly. Boy, I think um, you guys probably feel like I'm beating a dead horse here, but these sepsis questions are fairly important in the real world. All right, the final question we're gonna do here is question number 50, because all the other ones remaining just about are about sepsis, and you've got that down, I think, at this point. So a 58-year-old man is evaluated in the emergency department because of a three-week history of cough and dyspnea. He now has hemoptysis. He also has fevers, night sweats, <clears throat> excuse me, and a 13.6 kilogram weight loss over the last three months. Hmm. He has no significant medical history and does not smoke, use alcohol, or take drugs. He takes no medications. He recently immigrated to the United States from Africa. On physical, it doesn't say which country. On physical examination, he appears thin and coughs frequently. Temperatures 38.3 degrees centigrade. 101.0 degrees Fahrenheit, blood pressure is 100 over 60 millimeters of mercury, and pulse rate is 101 per minute, a respiratory rate is 30 per minute. Pulmonary examination shows crackles over the right upper lung field. 
Which of the following are the most appropriate infectious precautions to order for this patient? A, airborne, B, contact, C, droplet, or D, standard? Once again, that's A, airborne, B, contact, C, droplet, or D, standard. Okay, I hope that this, the last question of the ID section that I'm going to do, you got correct. The answer is A. You would put him on airborne respiratory precautions because of his high risk of having active tuberculosis along with a compatible clinical picture. He is from a location in which TB is endemic and his current clinical presentation is consistent with reactivation of pulmonary TB, i.e. the crackles in the upper lobe. A diagnosis of pulmonary TB should be considered in any patient with cough for greater than three weeks, loss of appetite, unexplained weight loss, night sweats, hoarseness, fever, fatigue, or chest pain. The index of suspicion should be substantially higher for patients who have spent time in developing countries in certain urban areas in the United States with a high prevalence of TB or in a correctional facility. Airborne precautions are recommended for patients infected with microorganisms such as MTB or rubella virus that are transmitted by airborne droplet nuclei smaller than five micrometers, micrometers I should say. That would be the correct way to pronounce that. Organisms that cause avian influenza, varicella, disseminated zoster, severe acute respiratory syndrome, or smallpox, and the agents of viral hemorrhage, hemorrhagic fever also require airborne precautions. Airborne precautions include placing the patient in an isolation room with high efficiency particulate air filtrations and negative pressure. Anyone entering the room should wear a fit-tested N95 or higher disposable respirator as should the patient during transport out of the room. This stuff's really important. You need to know this forever. Goggles, gowns, and gloves should be worn if substantial spraying of respiratory secretions is anticipated. So what about these other types of precautions? Uh, contact precautions are indicated for patients with known or suspected infections that are transmitted by direct contact, such as, well, let me just fill in there, COVID-19, uh, vancomycin-resistant enterococci, and methicillin-resistant staph aureus. The patient is isolated in a private room or with patients who have the same active infection. Non-sterile gloves and gowns are required for direct contact with the patient or with any infective material. Gowns and gloves are removed before exiting uh, isolation rooms. Because the patient potentially has a disease that is transmitted through airborne droplets, contact precautions would not be appropriate. What about droplet precautions? These are used for protection against microorganisms transmitted by respiratory droplets larger than five micrometers. These droplets can usually be transmitted to susceptible recipient mucosal surfaces over distance of less than three to 10 feet. Examples of pathogens and disease that require the institution of droplet isolation precautions include Neisseria meningitidis, pneumonic plague, diphtheria, H. flu type B, Bordetella pertussis, influenza, mumps, rubella, and parvovirus B19, droplet and COVID-19. Droplet precautions, shall I say that again? No, I won't. 
Doppler precautions include placing the patient in an isolation room, wearing a face or surgical mask when in the room, and wearing goggles, gowns, and gloves. Boy, does that sound familiar. If substantial spraying of respiratory secretions is anticipated, droplet precautions alone would not be considered adequate for protection against communication of TB. Standard precautions are used with all patients and include, include protecting breaks in the skin or mucous membranes from possible pathogenic exposures, washing the hands before and after patient contact, wearing gloves when contacting blood or bodily fluids, washing the hands after glove removal, and wearing a mask and eye protection when needed to decrease the risk of splash or aerosol-associated exposure. However, using only standard precautions in this patient with suspected TB would provide inadequate protection. Key point here, airborne precautions should be initiated immediately for any patient who has suspected tuberculosis to reduce the risk of transmission to healthcare workers and other patients. Congratulations to all of us. We've pretty much finished the ID section, and then we just need to figure out where to go next. If you have any requests for sections you would like me to cover, please email me ASAP. And I really do need to apologize because I didn't tell you what songs those were uh, that were played by Ellis Marsalis. The first one was Miss Otis Regrets. She's unable to have lunch today. The second song is called Melancholia. And I'm going to usher you out with a song called Do You Know What It Means to Miss New Orleans? in memory of Ellis Marsalis. <laughs>